Well, you know, it's Friday, and every time it's Friday, it's time to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Tabalero, and my co-host, my friend, he's with me as well, Kelly Grayson. KG, how are things going on your end? Saving lives, stamping out disease and pestilence. I just uh, uh, put the wraps on, a, on an EMT class and started an advanced EMT class, so uh i'm i'm rolling along man you keep rolling man so i I did want to spend a couple minutes kelly you know i have the opportunity every week to help post the show and i'm just amazed by the numbers that we see when it comes to the stats of our show and i wanted to share just a little bit you know with the listeners because it's really you know those folks that are out there that are really kind of making the show successful in the last seven days We've had 5,628 plays of the show. But over the course of five years of doing this show, we've had 717,000 listens or downloads of the show, which I think is pretty awesome. And, And just to give you a couple more of those stats, you know, the top countries, of course, is the United States. We're also being played in Canada and the United Kingdom. The top cities that listen to the show is Minneapolis, Minnesota, followed by Dayton, Ohio, and San Francisco, California. And, you know, uh, you know, just thank you very much. I mean, when Kelly and I started this show, and, and when you and I were sitting around, we were in, you know, the Ozarks of Missouri, and we were sitting mm-hmm. in front of that fireplace, and Artsia was there, and we were kind of thinking about this show. Did you ever think, one, that we'd be doing it for five years, and two, that we'd have, you know, over you know, or pretty close to three quarter of a million, uh, listens to the shows that we're doing. It's, it's pretty awesome, man. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's exhilarating and, and sad in some respects. It's exhilarating that we've had the success we've had. It's also sad in that, that you are my third longest relationship I've had in my life. I just, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, how yeah, to parse I, don't that, I don't know that I want to categorize kind of it that depressing. way. Yeah, stop that. You know, but kind of I, I can <laughs> see why I'd be the third longest. I, I've just learned in my uh, critical thinking skills how to uh, compensate and overcome the challenges of, uh, you know, working with you. But uh, so if I could ever give, maybe we should just write a little course on, uh, you know, how to deal with Kelly Grayson in his environment. I don't know, maybe we'll think about that a little bit. <laughs> so, Kelly, you know... I, just feed me Cheetos and Shinerbach, and that's, that'll be uh, Let's not talk about the Cheetos anymore. But let's go ahead and talk about, you know, introduce the topic. And, you know, uh, when we think about the patients that we see, it really is important that we develop the rapport with the patient so we can determine the best treatment. And sometimes that doesn't go the way that we expect it to go. And I'm going to kind of kick it to you so you can kind of introduce this week's topic. This this story originates out of Orangeburg, South Carolina. And it's it's a, a, a really good demonstration of, of determining present mental capacity and, and not abrogating our duty uh, to our patients and, and our ethical, legal, and moral uh, responsibility to render the best care we can for our patient, especially when those patients are incapable of caring for themselves. Uh, long story short, a man in Orangeburg, South Carolina, Paul Tarashuk, was struck by a vehicle um, on the side of the highway after being released by EMTs. As it turns out, Mr. Tereshuk was was uh, having a, a schizophrenic episode and climbed atop a truck driver's uh, truck naked 
and, and the truck driver called police and the police punted it down to the emergency uh, medical services and paramedics arrived on scene and uh, basically released the guy despite the fact that he was unable to communicate and, you know, uh, a naked man on the side of the interstate babbling incoherently probably is uh, uh, a slam dunk for a patient who does not have present mental capacity to refuse care. And they let the man loose, and he was he was struck by a vehicle and killed. Um, this is the latest in a story in a, in a series of stories of EMTs inadequately assessing their patients and, and rendering inadequate care. There was there was a uh, uh, some stories in the news just recently of, of uh, uh, a man brought into jail and asked to be assessed by uh, the, the the arresting officers asked him to uh, EMTs to assess him and they inadequately assessed the man and he died of internal injuries later at the uh, uh, in custody. And, um, and, and that sort of thing. And, and it's, it's, I won't call it a disturbing trend because I'm not so sure, Chris, that, that this happens any more yeah. in the age of social media than it has in the past, but now it's visible and we know about it. And, and it's something I think we need to talk about, man. How do you let a patient go well, who can't talk to you? And it's obvious, well, he's, he's naked on the side of the road. Yeah, I don't know that, you know, I don't know specifically that I want to get into the armchair quarterback of how do we or how don't we, but I think what we need to do is what I'm seeing, and I think what this story brings up, is the trend that EMS providers are now being investigated, are now being charged, are now being prosecuted for not doing their job. And, you know, so I would like to see the conversation really kind of lean around you know, what do we have to do to be the best that we can be at our job, to do what we need to do to help the patients to get out of this mindset that, you know, you know, this isn't my fish or this isn't my problem and I'm going to punt it to EMS. But we've got to now start to think about changing the focus of our job because I think a lot of the providers who we hear from and who we hear these stories from, Kelly, they're really starting to say, you know what, I don't want to be bothered with this. I don't, I don't want to take care of these patients. You know, so what? There's a naked guy. You know, if he's got no medical emergencies, I'm not going to. We need to change a paradigm here that anybody who calls EMS, we work for them at that particular moment. And we've got to be able to take the, I don't know, man, the, 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 the due diligence, the professionalism, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the compassion to know that we've got to be able to be that advocate for that patient. I think that's the failure. I don't think the failure is specific stories. Horrible story out of South Carolina. Horrible story about the uh, gentleman that died in prison. But I don't know that it's the specific story. I think it's the mindset. I think it's the the, the way that we're, we're approaching these patients that are causing these patients to die and then the paramedics or the EMTs are being held accountable to those situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you know, the, the, we, we've all run that call. We've all run that call where we felt like a, a, a law enforcement officer was trying to make it EMS's problem. Uh, but we owe it to our patients to, to assess the patient thoroughly and absolutely make sure that there isn't an, an underlying medical issue. And these two cases indicate uh, that, that it wasn't, uh, or these several cases indicate that, that often that isn't done. Um, you know, but wait a minute, let me, let, let me be fair here. Okay. Because there are times 
when EMS will call police to say, there's no medical emergency, this isn't my problem, too. Well, so, this is, this so is let's true. Be, let's, and be, let's be fair on both sides of this coin. We often, when we, we're, we're tired and we're overworked and we're stressed, and, and uh, we, we tend to, it, it, I guess it's human nature to, to tend to take the path of least resistance. And in the case of a patient in custody, you think, oh, well, you know, it's a cop's problem, the cop's responsibility. But he's, he's not. And often, especially with, with patients with mental disorders, uh, we don't do a real good job of, of determining if there's any kind of physiological problem uh, organic cause of the patient's altered mental status. Uh, no one, no one really does that whole AEIOU tips thing. Yeah. Uh, is it a, like meta, is it a metabolic issue that's causing that's this right. challenge? That's right. And, and, and it may have done in this case, but even if there was no, even if there was no uh, metabolic or toxicological or, or any other physiologic uh, cause of his altered mental status, uh, the fact remains that the man had altered mental status and was not capable of rendering of, of making competent decisions for himself or, or, or caring for himself. Um, you know, the, the elements we, we I've talked about this at, at conferences and, and in, in columns and whatnot, that we do a, a poor job of assessing people's capacity to refuse. And, and David Gibbett uh, has got some, some good information on this. And, and, uh, and I've collaborated with Gene Gandy, who, who does excellent talks on it as well. You know, we, we use GCS or the, the AA and O times four mnemonic as some surrogate for mental capacity when actually it's, that's a very limited blunt tool for assessing a patient's reasoning uh, and decision-making capacity. And, and in this case, uh, this gentleman obviously did not have adequate decision-making capacity um, and and needed medical attention for it. Uh, I want to just jump in here. And, you know, I, I think that the – I really want to get to the crux of the, the challenge here is why – and I'll ask you this question as I think about my own response, but why does EMS – as a whole, and because I think that the people who don't fall into this bucket um, are very few and far between. I mean, I, I think it's a smaller minority, but how come we have a culture in our career field to say, this just isn't my problem. I don't know why I have to take care of this person. I don't know why I'm getting called for this person. I don't know why I got to treat this person. Where did this culture come from that when people are in need we automatically say, um, we have this indifference to, I just don't care, I've got no compassion. That's, I think, one of the things that we've got to talk about. You know, we talk about when is EMS going to be taken seriously or, you know, yeah. when is EMS going to make the money that we need to make? Well, I'm going to ask the question, when is EMS going to start treating everybody like they're the same? When is EMS going to start, you know, focusing on folks that, uh, you know, just because they smell or just because they're poor or just because they're, you know, uh, a different color or a different... You know, that we're not treating people with dignity. We're not treating people with respect. We automatically think that, um, and I've heard it, and i got to be honest with you, Kelly, mm -hmm. I've said it, but yeah. why, why, do As have that, I. why do we have this indifference? How do we address this now in a different age to say that we need to be better to everybody that we come in contact with and treat them like we say they're one of our family members or how we'd want our family members treated? 
Well, I would disagree that that it's a cultural thing or that we have this culture of, of not treating patients uh, with with uh, empathy and, and preserving their dignity and, and that sort of thing. I, I don't think that's a cultural thing. I think what we're seeing is, is we see uh, I'm sure there are bad actors out there uh, and there are people that have that have. Uh, uh, EMS providers who have, who have committed malpractice and, and treated patients poorly, and uh, they were well aware of what they were doing. Uh, there's no question in my mind about that. But I don't think it's nearly as pervasive as being a, a, a culture uh, of that sort of thing. Um, I think more likely what has happened is, is you get uh, a, a crew that is tired, they're overworked, they're underpaid, they're stressed, they have all those organizational and career stressors that tend to sap your energy and, and your enjoyment doing the job. Um, and one day you look up and, and the person, the provider you are, is not, the, is not somebody you recognize. And God forbid, one day you step across a line and you look back and you realize, how did I, you know, how did I get here? Um, how did I become this person and, and why am I treating patients like this? Uh, it's, it's a gut check moment, but I, I don't, I think that happens to people now and then, and, and it could have very well happened in, in this particular case. And the paramedic who responded to the call uh, may be beating herself up over it uh, even today and deservedly so. But I don't, I don't think that makes the, them necessarily a caring or, or uh, an uncaring or, or evil person. Uh, I think that just sometimes it's uh, who we are is a, is a uh, accumulation of, of choices we made along the way. And some of those choices were fairly innocuous and, and, and snuck up on us. But this, as a teaching case, still um, gives us the opportunity to, to, to stress to new providers who, who really haven't, you know, they're still conscientious and they want to do the right thing, make sure they don't make that mistake um, that, uh, that just because a patient refused care um, doesn't mean that, that you can't still take them to the hospital under their own best interest. Uh, we, we have laws in, in place to do that. There's the Baker Act or versions thereof uh, uh, for different states um, that allow us to, to take a patient uh, against their will um, if we believe that they are uh, an imminent threat to themselves or others. Uh, and, and I would postulate that uh, walking naked on the side of I-95 and craw crawling up on a truck driver's truck uh, is pretty strong evidence that you are not uh, um, capable of caring for yourself and you are in imminent danger of, of yourself and others. You know, um, one of the things... So one, how do you... Go ahead. Yeah, but one of the things that you just said was that, you know, people who are overworked, people who are stressed, people who are not paid mm -hmm. enough... And, but then you go in and say that there's no culture. If you're admitting that that could be the catalyst for this type of behavior, then you've got to admit that there's a culture. No, 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 no. I don't. No, I'm. I'm not going to agree with you that that there's a culture. What I'm saying is, is that that often we don't give. Uh, agencies don't give people the, the tools they need to deal with organizational uh, stressors. Uh, we come into the profession with unrealistic expectations. Uh, you know, you're going to find, even at, at really premier EMS agencies and leaders in our field, uh, where people are taught uh, or treated well and paid well, um, people still have bad days. You know, you, you, you know, you're, you're, 
11 hours into a 12 hour shift and you're on your 14th transport and you haven't eaten or pooped or, or, or gone to the bathroom and, uh, since you came on shift and you're just tired and, and stressed, uh, it's, it's understandable. It's not excusable, but it's understandable. Um, but th- the other problem is, is we, we take this superficial approach uh, to to assessing people's uh, capacity to to make decisions for themselves, and and we wind up on on either end of the spectrum instead of in the middle where we need to be. It's we we usually are, are you find people that that adhere to one of the extremes. Uh, there's the the camp of people who think that even one sip of a beer or one alcoholic beverage renders you incompetent to refuse care, and uh, there's the people on the other end of the spectrum going like, I'm not toting a butt whooping for anybody. And, and it's not my job to take people into custody and take them to the hospital against their will. And neither one of those is valid. Somewhere that sweet spot in the middle is the realm of assessing your patient thoroughly, asking the appropriate questions, and then uh, being an advocate for the patient's best interest. And I think that, I think that things, uh, you know, the simple, uh, the simple mechanism of, of assessing uh, recall, uh, memory and orientation, and, and cognitive ability is where we, we find that sweet spot by asking the appropriate questions, asking them in the appropriate way, so we can not only determine the patient's memory uh, and orientation, but their decision-making capacity as well. It takes only a few questions to ask that, no more than five minutes uh, in, in talking to the patient, usually much less than that. But so few providers know how to do it or, or, or even attempt it. So then, you know, we think about this. Let's go ahead and put this aside now. And you and I have the whiteboard, and, and we're going to develop this process of how we can keep ourselves from being in these situations, I mean, what advice do we give to the providers out there to say, you know, this could happen, could have happened to anybody. Uh, we've got to make the decisions that we need to make to ensure that we follow the rules. We know implied consent. You know, you bring up the Baker Act and the other, uh, you know, things that we need to be able to utilize to say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to keep people safe. So if we're going to develop a process here, if we're going to develop tips for the, you know, for the EMTs and paramedics that are out there, what do you start them with? First of all, you debunk the whole simplistic notion of uh, mnemonics like AVPU and, and uh, the GCS uh, as a surrogate for assessing a patient's mental status. First of all, GCS was never intended to be an right. assessment of a patient's mental status. You're absolutely uh, right. And I was one of, and I'm sorry to yeah. cut you off, but that's been one of my pet peeves for years is this yeah. is somebody that's got a head injury. This is somebody who's been in a serious trauma and we seem to use it in everyday medicine. And, and it's something that we, we do that is ridiculous that we've got to stop. Yeah, it's a, it's a surrogate and a, and a poor surrogate at that. But we also use the terms awake, alert, and oriented, and we just jot that down as if it, you know, uh, the word of God, um, when a competent attorney can destroy that because they'll call that facts, uh, a conclusion based on facts, not an evidence. Uh, and they'll start asking you questions like, okay, well, what did you ask the patient uh, and what exercises did you do to determine they were in your words, awake, alert, and oriented, uh, and you tell them, and they'll ask you why you didn't include that in your report, and what are you going to say? Well, I didn't think it was necessary. 
Well, the next line of question is, okay, well, what else happened on the scene that you didn't feel was necessary to include in your report? Or, you know, I was in a hurry. Oh, okay. So you, you admit that you, you take shortcuts when you're, when you're uh, in a hurry. Um, there, there is no winning strategy uh, for doing that. So first of all, we, we, we dispel this simplistic notion that we can just document a patient's mental status uh, with a couple of uh, acronyms uh, salted through our, our patient narrative. And second, it's a three-step process. If you're going to uh, determine a patient's decision-making capacity, their present mental capacity, um, uh, the ability to consent to care, and most importantly, the ability to refuse care, um, it really doesn't have a great deal to do with what drugs they're on and how many beers they've consumed or anything else. It's three elements. Uh, there's memory, orientation, and cognitive ability. So you start with memory and recall, and you say at the beginning of the exercise, Mr. Jones, I know you don't want to go to the hospital, and, and, and I'm not going to make you go against your will if you can demonstrate to me that you understand the consequences of refusing care. So uh, bear with me and answer a few questions for me, and if you answer these questions correctly, I will let you sign this uh, and, and go on about your way, and, and uh, I certainly hope you don't stubborn yourself to death. Um, so you ask them to memorize four words. Um, I, I tell people horse, apple, car, television, um, and, and make the, the point to the patient, you know, I want you to memorize these words, uh, repeat them to yourself in your head. And then in five minutes, I'm going to ask you those words again. I want you to repeat them back to me. Um, and then the second element is, is orientation. And you ask your standard, uh, awake, alert and oriented questions, but, but rather than just document the conclusion, you you write the report in such a way that you just document the facts and whoever reads the report makes the conclusion. In other words, instead of saying the patient was awake, alert, and oriented times three, say, uh, when asked to identify the, pa the people in the room, the patient stated, well, that's my wife, Carol, that's my son, Robert, uh, and I didn't catch your partner's name uh, or the police officer's name. You know, when asked if he knew what time it was, patient stated that he did not know, but consulted his wristwatch for rep, uh, for reference. Uh, that demonstrates orientation and, and paints a much more vivid picture of the patient's mental status than simply using an acronym. And the last thing you do is do something, ask the patient a question that requires reasoning, not just spitting out regurgitating hardwired uh, long-term memory, uh, information, you know, uh, anyone with, with a few functioning brain cells can tell you who's the president of the United States right now. I can be as drunk as a skunk and totally incapable of making good decisions and tell you my date of birth and social security number. I can do those things because that's information that that's, that's there and I, I can pull it up at will. Um, but it doesn't mean that I can make good decisions. So you ask a question that requires reasoning, something like um, my favorite is ask the patient to, to calculate a, a combination of coins. I'll tell them hypothetical situation, pretend I'm handing you some coins. I want you to add them up in your head and tell me out loud how much they're worth as we go along. And I'll say, you know, I give you two quarters, um, and the patient says, well, that's 50 cents. All right. Plus three nickels. Well, that's 65 cents plus a dime. Oh, well, that's 75 cents plus four pennies. Hang on. You're well, going, you're 70. going, you're going too fast. You're going too fast. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's 79 cents, you know, or, or um, another trick that, that I don't like because I can't do this on my, on my most lucid days is, is the serial sevens. You know, I ask the patient to count backwards from 100 by seven. I hate that. Um, Are you, you I, seriously make people so, do that? No, no. But, but I'll, I'll, say, I'll say, hey, is Mickey Mouse a cat or a dog? You know, and the patient said, well, neither. He's a mouse. How many, right, well, how many three cent stamps in a dozen? Yeah, yeah. And I'll, 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 yeah, exactly. That sort of thing. Um, what do you call your mother's brother? Um, and, and, and I'll document word for word. Dad? Is it, is it dad? <laughs> it's not dad, right? It, it's, yeah, where I live, it's dad. <laughs> but, but those kind of things require a patient to actually think. And that's the, that's the element, that cognitive ability combined with memory and recall and orientation that determine a patient's present mental capacity. And if you can demonstrate that the patient has present mental capacity, even in the presence of intoxicants, even if the patient is legally drunk, um, then, then you can make a pretty strong case that the patient understood the risks of refusing care. Uh, but when a patient is incoherent, can't talk to you, can't even communicate his needs, and communication is impossible, well, it's, it, that's a pretty much a slam dunk that that patient is unable to, uh, to care for himself and, and that you need to err on the side of, of transport and, and get this patient to, a medical, uh, to, to medical care at the hospital as, uh, in, uh, in as timely a fashion as you can. Um, but those are three simple things that we often neglect. And, and I preach that sort of thing, um, because it's, it's, you know, I've, I've been burned before, never sued, thank God, but I've been burned by inadequate documentation. And someone asked me, Hey, what do you mean here? And I went, uh, well, uh, what I meant was I didn't write down what I meant. I just didn't do a good job of, of documenting that. Um, and I was lucky enough that it was a QI person. Uh, rather than an attorney asking me this, but that's, you know, that's how that sort of thing goes. And that's how we, that's how we avoid these situations in the future, uh, where you don't have a bad outcome like happened to Paul to But Hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. What tricks and tips do you have for documenting present mental capacity and making sure your patient has the capacity to make rational decisions about his care? I'd like you to share them with us at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Ciballero, a man who lacks present mental capacity, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.